0: So, um, war is a women's issue (laughs) because when we look at pictures of the fleeing refugees, what do we see? We see women and children in any country, Syria, Yemen, um, Afghanistan, Ukraine, you know. So, um, women have, and women have um, done a great deal to resist wars throughout time, and I wanna just read a a little thing from Julia Ward Howe, who's the woman um, who wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And um, she wrote this, it was a proclamation, and I can't remember if it was, I can't remember the date, but it became, it's a Mother's Day proclamation. Women were gathered in the midst of the Civil War to have a women's convocation, and She wrote these words, I won't read all of them, but they're such a perfect encapsulation of a woman's view of watching their sons and now their daughters going off to serve an agenda that is not meaningful. (laughs) So she says, arise then women of this day, arise all women who have hearts, whether our baptism be that of water or of tears, say firmly, We will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Mm, Savor that sentence. We will not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We, women of one country, will be too tender of those of another country to send our sons to slaughter their sons. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel." And there's more, but you can look it up. It's Julia Ward Howe. And I was also remembering the wonderful Greek play, Lysistrata, um, by, what, what's his name? I can't think of his name right now, but it was written by a man. But it is about women who are just fed up with the Peloponnesian War and the endless killing and ongoing you know, tug of war and power struggle. And so Lysistrata, I believe it is, suggests that the way to get the men to stop is to refuse to have sex with them. And this is, you know, women just using the power that we had, we have, and the power in those days. And it's, um, it's, it's a great story, um, how they, how they did that and more. Um, so I'll be, and, and I'm going to save this for a few minutes, but I'm going to talk about the women of Liberia who resisted a civil war there and um, ended it, and I visited, I've spent time with them when I was traveling, and I may have talked about them before, but they will inspire us with how women draw on their innate power, the power of the mother, the power of men, speaking to men who've been raised by mothers, and in Africa, anyway, have been tuned to listen to that voice. You do not not listen to your mother in other cultures, many other cultures. So we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I just want to say a couple of things about war. For me, war is an expression of the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. It is a systemization of hatred and the greed of wanting other people's land, other people's resources, other people's oil, other people's grain whatever, but it is that wanting to appropriate and, and grab what has not been offered. Um, Ukraine has not offered to this to this situation. This is so greed, hatred, and then the delusion, the delusion of believing that you can perpetrate suffering and violence on another people, reap the rewards you hoped you would get and not have consequences. The delusion that you are separate, it is really an expression of the delusion of separation, that one can, as an individual or an entity, take power and leave others with less power and think that there's no karmic consequences to this. And so when we look at a war like what's going on now, the practice of looking deeply, which is what Thich Nhat Hanh articulated so beautifully, is look deeply at the causes and conditions that create a manifestation. And you may know he has these teachings about a cloud and how a cloud is a manifestation of all these causes and conditions. Temperature, moisture, heat, cold, um, wind, and then if you take it a little deeper, the melting polar ice caps, the burning drought in the Sahara Desert, the robbery of the rainforest so that the oxygen is changing. All of those things are factors that somehow manifest with all the conditions align into this beautiful cloud or this not so beautiful cloud. And that that is looking deeply. So if we look deeply at any conflict, and war, Ukraine and Russia is a great example, and we look beyond this moment to the histories of each country, the generations past, Who has been occupied? Who has been invaded? Russia suffered horribly during World War II. You know, they're still recovering from that. Um, The the threat of the idea of the Ukraine moving closer to NATO is terrifying. There's just, the more one looks deeply with compassion, the more one understands that these manifestations are eruptions out of history, out of historicness, and that they're impermanent, too. Remember that the nature of reality is that everything is always changing because of the causes and conditions are always changing. Um, Putin thought, we believe, people believe that Putin thought he was gonna go in and it was gonna be quick. And, it was, and he did not anticipate the resistance of the Ukrainian people. So that was a cause and condition that perhaps he was not prepared for and that created a different story than the story he thought was gonna unfold. <laughs> happens all the time, right? <laughs> we go into a situation with our idea of how it's gonna play out and we forget that there are other players involved, right? Or we think there, we know these players but we forgot about those ones, you know? So. Uh, that is one view, that one understanding I have of war is just it's a it's a su- supremely delusional individualism. It's not understanding interconnection, and that if I do this, there will be these other outcomes that may affect me in ways I hadn't anticipated. It's sort of the the I don't want to say the dark side of interconnection, but it it is just one of the truths of it. What goes around comes around, and then there's um. The, um, the Buddhist, Buddha, Buddha's view of war. I, I did a little bit of reading about what, what he had to say about violence and, and war, and it's complicated. I think I could sum up Buddha's view by saying it's complicated. He's, Buddha was not a pacifist. Um, non-harming is not so simple. Non-harming is not so simple. In fact, I'm going to do a whole Dharma talk about about harm and how complicated it is in a few weeks, but um, the Buddha's way of slicing this was that a war, a, a, an aggressive act, is always wrong. That is never, never acceptable. But resisting violence and invasion to protect family, to protect country, to protect village, is an honorable act. It's not, it's not required, but it is a acceptable act within a Buddhist framework. And in fact, a quote here, it is neither good nor righteous to stand aside while innocent people are slaughtered. A Theravadan monk and scholar said, the Buddha did not teach his followers to surrender to any form of evil power, be it a human or a supernatural being. So what the Ukrainian people are doing with their resistance, largely nonviolence, is part of a practice of non-harming because the harm that would be done to their people, their families, their way of life, their very sense of integrity and humanness, um, would be sacrificed by submission, by just a, a rolling over, you know. So, Buddha. There were two, two stories of two different conflicts that the Buddha tried to intervene in. They were between warring tribes within the the ancient Nepalese tribal systems. And one of them, he did persuade the two, quote, leaders to, uh, to, to stop. The other one, he did not. He failed, so to speak. And the way he framed that is so interesting to me he, and helpful because he said he attributed his failure to the karma of these, these tribes, these people, this whatever, the karma that could not be stopped the karma that could not be stopped. There are costs and conditions manifesting that have so much power in them that sometimes they cannot be, you know, whatever that is. They, they They are going to play out. It doesn't mean they get the last word. It just means that sometimes our efforts are absolutely noble and absolutely right on in every way and they still may fail they still may fail and what well, what is important to remember is that we need to weigh our actions on behalf of peace and justice not on the basis of did i get the outcome i wanted because we don't always get the outcome we wanted at least not when we wanted it but we need to weigh it and this is what the buddha teaches in terms of our intention in terms of is there hatred in our my heart is there a greed, a greed, a grasping in my heart. Is there a dismissing of the other person's humanity? That is not right action. You know, some situations are just beyond direct intervention. And yet, if our intention is correct and compassionate, then the action is is enough. It is not. It is enough. It is more than enough. Buddha talks about the um, the importance of feeling connected to other humans even as we may be resisting them even as we might be hurting them for this uh, I think of a mother who perhaps hits her husband over the head with a frying pan to stop him from beating the children I mean you know this is complicated there's harm and there's harm and yet it's what's what in the what's in the heart makes a huge difference, and the karmic load the Buddha says is less. There is still karmic impact if we harm others out of good intention for the protection of other life, but it is not nearly as intense as if we aggressively, greedily, hatefully go into an attacking mode. So when I think about women, I'm going to get my guitar here. You know I. I feel like women, historically throughout time, have been, for whatever reason, however much biological, social, it's, it's hard to un- untangle all that. It's complicated, that's my favorite phrase. But that we have tended to be the keepers of the village, the keepers of the community, the keepers of the family. Those who tune in, who listen, like, uh, like um, Kuan Yin and Tara, who hear the cries of the community, who hear the child who's not being attended to, who hear the elder who is left alone, who hear the, the the anguish of the young men who don't know how to find their way. And women have been the balancers, the weavers, the um, the ones who seem to understand that consequences are real. <laughs> I just love that T-shirt that says something like, If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. You know, it's like a family is connected. Or the other one that says, a mother is only as happy as her most unhappy child. That one is profound, isn't it? And I feel like as a woman that this is true of the world, like my happiness is very tied up in the happiness of the rest of the world. And I think this is true for all beings. But um, there's some way in which we are more, perhaps more porous, more, more or less, fewer filters, fewer barriers, and and feel that interconnected and more. I don't. It's it's difficult. It's um tricky to to generalize. But I'm just going to say that as a as a description of what we women bring to this situation of delusion around separateness. So this is a song I wrote before I went on my international travels to meet with women in Asia and Africa to learn about power. I wanted to learn how they had so much power in their communities, with so little economic resources. So, in honor of International Women's Day. These hands have caught a newborn baby daughter these hands are gently closed, the eyes in death. These hands have... F- sorry, I have to think for a minute. I got distracted by the something. I want to just start over. These hands have caught a newborn baby daughter. These hands have gently closed, the eyes in death. These hands. Of sifted flour and poured the water, kneaded the dough for daily bread. These hands of woven many colors held the plow, chopped the sugar cane, signed petitions, held the gavel. Knitted up what's come unravelled, lifted up the crying child and eased the pain. hours oh, for It isn't real. till the power till the powers rearrange and we put our trust again in women's hands and we put our The women of Liberia in, I think it was 1992, took the power into their hands, the power they knew they already had, and they just needed to marshal it and do it collectively. This was after several years of civil war. The dictator was Charles Taylor. He was a narcissist and um, mad for power and uh, pretty out of touch, pretty sociopathic. And then there were, so he was doing his thing, and then there were warlords in different regions who also were scrambling for power. So it was a full-blown civil violence of tribe against tribe, village against village, boys who had grown up you know, in, separ- in villages near each other being taken away as child soldiers and fighting each other. Um, it was bloody, it was um, just it, villages just being overtaken and rampaged, uh, women and girls raped. Um, again, boys taken away to be soldiers. And um, a woman whose name, I'm, I wish I'd remembered to look it up, very well-known name. You'd probably know it if I said it. Um, she called women together into the capital of Mon- the Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, uh, to have a women's convocation like Julia Ward Howe called for. And she uh, was, was a visionary in several ways, and one of them was doing that, and the other was that she invited Muslim and Christian women together, and that was unusual in that country. And they sat in a church for many days, four or five days, and they fasted and they prayed because that is always how you start a mission of grave importance and a convocation of grave importance. You you fast and you pray. When I was there, I was talking to one woman and telling the situation we were in in the US. This was 2016, but before the November election. But um, I forget what war we were engaged in. Uh, Lema, yes, Lema Guobei. So I can't even say it. I'm sorry. Thank you, Charlene. But thank you for that name. You can all look it up. Um, and I said, what, what would you suggest that we do, we women, who can't seem to stop these endless wars? And she said, well, first you must fast and you must pray. I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> never, never occurred to me. So they they fasted and prayed and spoke together and sang and wept and um they came upon the decision to start a nonviolent women's resistance and they all dressed in white and some of them that well first they sat in a large field or a large meadow right near the building where charles taylor drove to work every day to his Imperial offices. So, because in his delusion, he talked about how the people of Liberia loved him and how he was, you know, saving them from disaster and whatever. And so every day he had to pass four or five hundred women in white sitting there with signs saying, No war, we want peace. And this was their first witness. There were many more like it, They, um, but I want to talk about the villages because we're going to run out of time. Um, in the villages, the women who came to the convocation went back and they gathered their village women together and told them, we, we now are going to resist. And I went and stayed in the village of Totota with Annie, who was one of those women who came back and gathered her women together. and um, and. Uh, it just chokes me up because what what an incredible privilege it was. I was so fortunate. And I went to the peace house. They had built a peace house, and there were peace houses being built all around the country by these women. And it was a small gathering place, probably as big as some of our living rooms. And um, and they would gather there to to support each other, to sing, to pray, and to plan. So we met in the peace house, and they told me the story of how they met the soldiers when they came to the village. And what they would do is they, they had either their white or they, had, they made these t-shirts that said, you know, women for peace or something. But when the soldiers would come in with their rifles and their shouts and whatevers, the women would approach them. They would come to them and they would surround them, they would just encircle them, and realize that these men, if they, if they were not known to them, they were men like them. This was not an asymmetrical war with one race dominating another. These were just people of one country and one color who knew each other deeply. And so they would surround the men and they would speak to them, and they would say, talk to them about their mothers, and they would invoke their own mother power. And they would speak to them as mothers. Even if they were grown men, they would talk to them as sons. And they would tell them, this is wrong what you are doing. Your mothers do not want you to do this. Your village does not want you to do this. Your mothers want you home. You you, you cannot go on this way. This is not good behavior. They would just lecture them like a mother. Now, in I've often thought in a white American culture, I don't i think there's not a lot i don't think that's the way we would do it we don't have that kind of authority but in the but in the culture of liberia the mother had tremendous power you did not cross your mother and so they were listened to and and then the soldiers would say to them sometimes they were really young a lot of them were very young they would say i want to go home i don't want to do this But if I go home like this, I've been in the bush for six months, I've been in the bush for nine months, their hair is out to here, their clothes are filthy, you know, they're carrying guns. I say, I can't go home like this. How can I face my people looking like this, knowing what I've done, even if they don't know what I've done? And the women had a disarmament center not far away. They would say, come with us, and they would take them. And and they would say, we'll take your guns. You just leave them with us. We'll take care of them. And they gave them showers, and they cut their hair, and they gave them fresh clothes. And they restored them to the look of just a, a boy from the village or a man from the village. And this gave them a pathway home. It gave them a pathway out, you know. They would also sing to them they would surround them and they would sing the songs from their childhood, the songs that reminded them of who they were. And there's a beautiful description, I have a video of it, but I I don't have time to show it to you, when the women were telling me about this, where she talks about how the, the boys were weeping and hugging the women, and they were dancing and they were singing together. And it was really like calling somebody back to sanity, out of delusion, just the delusion of war. I'm sure there were many times when things were much more um, difficult and painful and and maybe, you know, this is a beautiful story and I'm sure it wasn't always as neat and tidy as I make it sound because I'm sort of summarizing, but this was women just evoking this deep power together. And um, they also, um, going back to the macro level, hundreds of them went to the imperial grounds, when there were supposed peace talks going on among warlords, Charles Taylor, etc. But it wasn't going anywhere because they were posturing. They were holding on to their little fiefdoms, their little power, their little whatever. And nothing was happening, and the women were just fed up. And so they closed all the windows of the building and then they circled it. They made a human chain around it and said, We will not open these windows you know, until you sit down and seriously make peace. And I believe they also threatened to take their shirts off, which in at least some parts of Africa is an act of shaming of the man, not the woman. An act of shaming, if a man sees an uncovered woman who is not his wife, this is a, a, a pollution. It's actually a pollution for him and he has to be um, ritually washed and this and that and the other. So anyway, they, they just brought out their quote, big guns. and they were successful. They were successful. So, I think the last thing I wanna say is that the reason we practice, and Ajahn Chah says this, Ajahn Chah, the, the great teacher of the Theravadan tradition of the forest Thai forest tradition that so many of the spirit rock teachers and Western teachers have been taught by, he says the reason we practice daily in these small ways is that so so we will be ready for the big moments the big moments and the women of Liberia were facing a big moment and they were ready because of the fasting and the praying and the cultural roots that they drew on so we too in our own way can cultivate a readiness by practicing equanimity by, which and equanimity very much is very much linked to me. This is a whole other piece I could, I didn't have time to talk about. To looking deeply, because when we really see how everything is arising out of these deep connections and out of the flow of history, it doesn't mean we just sit back and say, "All right, then, just let it roll," you know. But it does mean that we can understand there's a before, there's a now, and there's an after. That we're living in a verb. You know, war is a noun, oil is a noun, you know, these, you know what I mean? But but really, Putin is a noun. (laughs) But they're not really, none of this is nouns, it's all verbs. It's all causes and conditions moving through. And that is where I find equanimity. And in the clarity that that can give us, and the calming of our, reptilian brain, so that we're not uh, The beginnings of wise understanding arise. We begin to see more clearly. We begin to cultivate wise view and wise understanding, and that leads to wise action. And wise action, again, is not figuring out just the right thing, and then that'll do it, you know? Do Do you ever kind of tear your hair out, wondering if you should be out marching, or home writing petition writing postcards or um, going to a monastery and practicing for six months it's like what's the rightest right action it makes you crazy you know and the truth is that again it's not about outcome it's not like if I just get the right action then we'll get the right outcome no we we really align I think we just align with what our truth is and what our capacity is. Some people are so good at marching. Some people are so good at getting arrested. And some people are so good at making phone calls, you know, and calling legislators or calling voters. And some people are just, there was a wonderful story of, of on the march, at one of the big marches on Washington where 100,000 people came in, I don't know how long ago, it wasn't that long ago, and um, a lot of the local people in D.C., in churches and in, in peace communities and whatnot, got the idea that when people arrived on all these buses, they were going to be hungry. So they had these huge sandwich-making sessions. They made 50,000 sandwiches and met people at the buses as they arrived. That's right action. Right, That is right action, wise action. So, I encourage us all to just remember that this practice that we're doing is not self-indulgent, it's not private, it's not personal, it is um, liberatory. It is for the liberation of all, and for the clarity to know what our wise action is, and then the courage, the virya, the bravery, the energy to do it, to just do the next right thing. So I'm going to stop. Thank you so much for listening. And um, (laughs) I'd just love to hear any of your comments or or thoughts or or questions. I keep seeing this picture on the internet of strollers lined up on the train uh, station platform by the people who live there for the use of refugees who arrive with their children. So it just says, you know, women know what women are going to need, and they do it. Right, they right. go ahead and do it. Yes. I thought that was just so beautiful. I hadn't heard that. Oh, I'd heard of people standing where the refugees are coming in. in this Germany, I think, with big signs saying, one room. Like, I have a room in my house. Come with me. Two mm-hmm. rooms. It's very moving. Yeah. And close to what you said, too, they greet Russian soldiers and send them home to their moms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. God, what a wonderful image that is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.